everyone. Oh. <laughs> Woo. You got a little frog in there? Yeah, I got a little frog in my throat. Oh, gosh. Well, welcome back to Don't Fuck With Ghosts, the podcast about all things haunted, spooky, and supernatural. Ooh, she got, I got it. it. I was like, because when Nikki was like, it's alphabetical. I was like, oh, no, oh, I remember the true. order. Yeah. Um, we are your Blost sisters. I'm Betsy. And I'm Greer. Oh, it's been a minute. I know. It's been since we've done our last, the last episode we did where we've each told stories. It's been like a month. It's been over a month. Over. Yeah, that's because right. the last time we it did our own stories October. was Columbus Day or Indigenous People's Day. That's insane. Yeah. And now we're through the Halloween season. Like it's I know. always spooky season in our hearts, but it's, it's I over. I know. And it, it, I had like the post spooky season blues. I know. It's sad. It's such a happy, like October was such a good month. I feel like it goes by so fast every year. Yeah. And I feel like it's not like Christmas. The Christmas season continues after the holiday. I feel because it yeah. kind of goes till new year's and even yeah, yeah. beyond new year's, you still got your lights up and your tree. If you mm-hmm. celebrate, but with Halloween, you're just done. I know. It's well, so and sad. so many people, like, the minute Halloween is over, switched immediately to Christmas. But I feel like I need it to breathe a little bit. I, I agree. Know. Yeah. I think I used to have a hard line at I'm not going to do Christmas until after Thanksgiving. But mm-hmm. then I feel like when the pandemic hit, we were yeah. like, we need joy ASAP. Yeah. And so I've started to be like mid-November, I'll start to listen to some Christmas mm-hmm. music, mostly like instrumental but now I'm like ready. Yeah, that's how I felt too. Like last year I was ready to go with Christmas, but this year I still felt like I needed the breathing room and I'm like starting now to get into the holiday spirit. Like I heard my little brother was listening to Last Christmas yesterday on our car ride home. So good. So I'm I'm itching for Christmas. Well, it'll be soon enough. For tomorrow is Thanksgiving, so we're recording this like right before. Well, if you're listening to this right now, it is Thanksgiving because oh this God. is coming out tomorrow. That's AKA so true. Thanksgiving for all of our fellow Americans. We salute to you, oh. fellow Americans. <laughs> as I saluted with the incorrect hand. Yeah, that's okay. That is okay. So <laughs> I'm really excited for our episode today. Um, we're going to be talking about haunted mental hospitals slash insane asylums. I feel like insane asylum is maybe not like a appropriate term to use. Yeah, I don't. But it yeah. is in the name of my title, so I feel like we can. Oh say yeah, it. I feel. It's well, okay. I feel like this is the case with many mental institutions um, that are probably mostly closed now. Yeah, um, they were. The name of it was changed multiple times, at least for mine. Because of the nature of what it was called originally, oh my God. <laughs> it's no longer acceptable. <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah. Mine was not like that. So I well, no, yours had the word lunatic in it, right? Oh yeah, as yeah. did mine. Oh shit, you're right. As did mine. Yes. Wow, I forgot. <laughs> so <As> lunatic <laughs> is now an offensive word. Like it's not, you know, a bad it's word. Not a it's kind not a curse word. word to but use. if you call somebody a lunatic, that's not nice. Yeah, it's not a kind <laughs> word to use. Yeah. Um, um, but the reason we wanted to talk about mental hospitals today was because a couple weeks ago back when it was still spooky season Greer and I went to the Maryland Renaissance Festival which was, was super fun did on we talk own. about that when Nikki no, was here uh no no we didn't because oh we God. went we hadn't gone yet <gasps> you're right wait wait no yes we, we did oh. we did <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we talked about it with we her. didn't no Oh, you guys? We talked about too many things. We couldn't fit it in. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a Ren fair near you or, like, within driving distance from you, go. I've never been before, and I was excited, but kind of, 
I don't think skeptical is the right word, but I was like, you didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect. I was like, I kind of went in and I was like, God, like, I feel like people are going to be dressed in like wild costumes and it's going to be kind of weird. Which they were. (laughs) They were. But I realized like the people who take it the most seriously are the nicest, the most welcoming, inviting people. Like it was a nice little lesson for me and it was so much fun. Yeah. It's like if you go to the Renaissance Festival, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. Yeah, exactly. Well. As long as it's not offensive, but, (laughs) (laughs) but like, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. You could, there was people dressed up as Spider-Man, which wasn't exactly on theme. (laughs) One year there was a guy dressed up in a revolutionary war reenactment costume. Again, not on theme, but like nobody cared. You could could show up dressed as whatever you wanted and be whoever you wanted to be. And I just love it so much. But anyway, on our way there, (laughs) like right before we got there, we drove right past this abandoned big ass building and we were like, what in the hell is that? Because it just stuck out like a sore thumb. And briefly I glimpsed, or glimpsed, glimpsed <laughs> the sign in front of it, which said Crownsville State Hospital. And so Greer then looked it up and that's how we found out that it was an abandoned insane asylum. Mm-hmm. So then obviously we had to do some research into it and, figure out what it used to be and it was an incredibly fucked up place it was specifically made for the black community of maryland but back in like the early 1900s so if you can think like if you're listening to this i'm sure you're aware of how horribly patients were treated in mental facilities in the early 1900s through pretty much recent times Um, so a mental institution that was made specifically for a black community in the United States of America, 10 times worse. Yeah. So I tried to do as much research on it as I could, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, not a whole lot of haunted information about this location. Now, granted, it has been closed off to the public. It's been abandoned since 2004. And it has been closed off to the public and there are people like monitoring it and who enters the property and whatnot. So like any trespassers are kicked off basically. Um, So I did find like one article about different haunted anecdotes, but like none of them like provided sources or (laughs) like there was no other articles validating what was being said in this article. So I, I moved on, but I just wanted to briefly talk about it and if you're interested in reading more about it it's called the crownsville state hospital in crownsville maryland um i'm really surprised just with the way that development happens in this area of the dmv area that it hasn't been um torn down or built by bought by like developers to change into something else so actually when i was doing my research i can't remember her name but this woman is like in the process of trying to transform it into basically a way to help people heal from the trauma that it incited, incited against the wow, black community. That's and amazing. like she learned that she had had family there and like she had grown up with a mentally ill father mm-hmm. who I don't believe was in Crownsville, but like that's her tie to um, the mentally ill community and wanting to bring reform to that area of expertise and also like bringing justice and healing to the people that were affected wow that's pretty incredible so that's if you google it you'll it'll be it'll come up so yeah 
that's why we wanted to talk about mental institutions today. Yeah, and there's like no shortage of ones to talk about in the US. I feel like starting the research for this was so overwhelming because, and actually when I searched um, haunted mental institutions in the US, it might have been like a location thing because we're close by, but the Crownsville Hospital did pop up um, or the institution did pop up. And then okay. like not a lot about it being haunted. Like you yeah. said, like you couldn't find a lot about it. But interestingly, it did like pop up in the I, list, which was yeah, very weird. Yeah, it's interesting because the one I'm going to be talking about today, um, it had a fair amount of haunted discussions about it online, but it doesn't have like specific ghosts that are associated with mm-hmm. it or like documented spirits. But I feel like a lot of these institutions that are claimed to be the most haunted or like the most infamous, not necessarily hugely documented as haunted or like paranormally active, but just such horrific things happened at these institutions that Mm -hmm. even if there aren't any like actual ghosts associated with the property the energy it puts off is just like suffocating yeah because you think of how many people have died in these places and suffer there's no way they can't be haunted yeah exactly Okay, so before we get into our stories today, we have a listener story from Olivia. Um, Olivia sent us this email back in the summer, and it's great because one of her stories is about um, a haunting that she experienced in a hospital. So she actually sent three stories in her email. I'm going to concentrate on the hospital one, and we'll be able to share the other two at another time. So Olivia, thank you so much for sending this in. She says... Hi, girls. Loving the podcast. Just started listening during my night shift. Anyways, I'm a healthcare support worker for the NHS in the south of England and have accumulated many ghost stories. I now work in the NHS as a healthcare support worker, um, and then she says, or a CNA in America. We look after the entire county of Hampshire and, and are where most people are recommended to go first. I was working a night shift again, but this night I was on a ward I've always heard scary stories from. Let's call it the blue ward, just in case anyone hears my name, hears this in my area, and refuses to go to the ward, lol. Smart. (laughs) (laughs) This shift, we had a room that most of the nurses went to sleep on their break, and I I never sleep at work. A nurse was about to go on the first break when we heard screaming. This nurse came out and was bawling. She explained that she was just sitting up on the bed when she heard a whisper and just thought it was one of us as we were listening to the hospital episode of the podcast just before. I think she's talking about when you were talking about Hill- Hillview Manor. Yes, I think so yeah. too. Okay. Um, she ignored the whisper and carried on to take her shoes off and was sat at the edge of the bed when something or someone grabbed her ankles. Mm. Oh, God. Why do ghosts always be grabbing? I don't know. They're touchy bastards. Not my, my foot's dangling uh, off my bed right oh, now. Watch your ankles. <laughs> she came out screaming and told us all about it, and we shrugged it off as her just joking until she lifted up her trouser leg, and she had hand marks almost <gasps> burnt into her leg. Did it, like, hurt her? Like, did she feel like she got stung or something? I don't know. It doesn't say, Olivia, if you know and you're listening, let us know if she was in pain. I would imagine so. She just looked down and was, like, bruised handprint. (laughs) God. Needless to say, she didn't sleep that night, and we never used that back room again for breaks, even to this day. 
Hope you two enjoyed the creepiness of my life, and we'll write the other stories at another time. Um, and hopefully it all made sense as I'm at work at the moment trying to be quick enough that the matron doesn't suspect me doing something unwork-related at 3 a.m. Stay creepy and keep up the good work. Sending love from the other side of the pond. Live. XOXO. Oh, Ooh, that was so creepy. Great, but also super creepy. I don't know if I'd ever be able to work a night shift at a hospital. Oh, my God, no. Just I bet Jean, your mom she, has yeah. so many stories. My mom um, was an ICU nurse, and I think you have to work night shifts a lot when you first start because it's kind of like you're the newbie, so you get the crappy shifts. I should ask her. She always says that things in the hospital get really weird when there are full moons oh. out. Like she says, it's like a known thing among healthcare workers. So, Olivia, I wonder if that's the same in your experience too. But... Um, I've never asked her specifically about if she feels like any paranormal things have happened, but I should ask her because I'm sure she's had some crazy experiences. Even if they're not really ghost related, they're probably like things that can't be explained or, you know, she's lived a lot of years in that uh, yeah. hospital. I just think that she, there's no way she doesn't have a plethora of stories. I know. Maybe that'll be our topic of discussion at Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow. I'll, in, I'll interview Great. her. Phone me in. <laughs> we can do a conference call. <laughs> Um, but yeah, thank you, Olivia, for sending that into us. Um, you guys know the drill at this point, but if you have paranormal encounters of your own that you want to share, feel free to send them into our email at dfwgpodcast at gmail.com or, you know, shoot us a DM on Instagram and we can share stories that way as well. And if you want to record your story like via audio, those are really fun for us to yeah, put we into the podcast. We had an audio recording since like episode three, maybe? three. Because we Full, had a couple from your four, coworker and then one from my cousin. Yeah. Okay. So today I'm going to talk about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic, Lunatic Asylum, also known as the Weston State Hospital located in Weston, West Virginia. Um, the hospital was known as Weston State while it was in operation and adopted the name Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum once it reopened, just like as a tourist attraction. But for the sake of avoiding confusion... Um, throughout my storytelling, I'm just going to call it Trans-Allegheny. So Trans-Allegheny served as a psychiatric hospital that was operated from 1864 to 1994 by the state government of West Virginia. Um, the building is really beautiful. Damn, I had a picture pulled up. Hold on. That I was going to show you. Okay. So the building is really beautiful. It was built in um, like the Gothic revival and Tudor revival styles. It kind of looks like the main building on Georgetown's campus, but Ooh, let I me feel show like, you. Yeah. And I'll include it obviously on Instagram as well. But <gasps> Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah it's that's like gorgeous. stone, um, like beautiful stone. It kind of has these spires and like points reaching up to the sky. Um, it looks obviously kind of run down now, but I think when it was in operation, it was like it's supposed to be really beautiful. It is the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America. And the property's total acreage is 666 acres. Did they do that on purpose? I don't know. Mm. I read that and I was like, oh, my God, I include that in my notes. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, <laughs> we're not starting out on a great foot just with the building alone. Um, so Trans-Allegheny was built following what is known as the Kirkbride plan. Hey, mine too. Oh, shit. Good. I don't have to, I don't have to discuss what the Kirkbride <laughs> yeah, plan I got, is now. <laughs> I got bullets. Okay. So the Kirkbride plan, um, which was developed by American psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride in the mid-19th century. 
Um, he theorized that environment and exposure to natural light and air circulation were crucial to healing the mentally ill. And buildings that were built according to the Kirkbride plan had the following features. Um, they had long, rambling wings, usually around eight in total. Um, and so every the entire institution that followed the Kirkbride plan was supposed to house about 250 patients. Each wing had its own ward, which housed things like a parlor, a bathroom, a clothing room, and an infirmary. Um, the wings furthest from the center of the building would be reserved for the most dangerous and volatile patients. And Kirkbride also emphasized the importance of having fertile hospital grounds uh, with like beautiful vistas and pleasing views. And he recommended a minimum of 100 acres per property. So uh, Trans Allegheny, like, did that times 6.6. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there were, he <clears throat> suggested that there should be 71 staff, which I don't know if you came across that number too, but I was like, that's very specific. But 71 staff who lived on the grounds of the building and he wanted about half to be men and half to be women. So this plan sounds like really idyllic, right? Like you focus on the natural light and healing and it sounds like all of your resources are supposed to be kind of centralized in one place and your caregivers are there in one place. So it sounds like it's supposed to be really great, but um, it quickly became really, really difficult to maintain at Trans Allegheny. Ooh, I had like an accent there. Allegheny. 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 <laughs> uh, patients were admitted to the asylum for a wide and we'll say interesting variety of reasons, including things like asthma, which is a physical illness, not a mental illness. Hmm. Um, okay. Laziness. Oh. Egotism. So I guess that could be like narcissistic personality Wait, disorder. remind me again what year this place opened. Oh, 1864. Okay. So, <sighs> yes, asthma, laziness, egotism, domestic troubles, which was just left as a general category. So probably, like, if a husband was abusing his wife and she was complaining about it, she'd be sent there. That's my guess. Um, hysteria, okay. which we all know isn't real. Uh, greediness, like, you know, the list, like, goes on and on of things that aren't actually... Mental, mental illnesses, illness, right. but Ugh. like we know that at this time and throughout a lot of the 20th century and 19th century, like 19th century, that asylums are basically just like dumping grounds for the quote, like undesirables right. of society. So Ugh. people were brought to this place and to trans Allegheny, whether or not they really needed professional mental health, like medical intervention. I wonder intervention. why they had so many problems with overcrowding. I know. <laughs> oh my God. These people are so stupid. <laughs> it's like the answer is right in front of you. Oh my God. If I were to be admitted to a mental hospital every time I felt lazy, continuous. <laughs> So anyway, like you just said, this led to an over number, overwhelming number of patients being admitted, causing the asylum to face shortage of staff and beds. Um, the asylum was originally designed to hold 250 patients, as I mentioned, following the Kirkbride plan. But over the course of its existence, it would become horribly overcrowded, which I'll get into um, a couple bullet points down on my notes. But I'm just going to go through some history of the asylum, its conditions over the years, and how that led to where it is today. So in 1935, a set of patients set fire to the fourth floor of the building, completely destroying it. And another time, patients tried to hang another resident with bed sheets. And when that didn't work, they crushed his head <gasps> with a metal bed frame, killing him. 
And I will actually talk about that story a bit later when we get to the hauntings. Oh, no. (sighs) Yeah. And in yet another incident, a nurse went missing only to be found dead two months later at the bottom of an unused staircase. So clearly Mm. whatever rehabilitation they were doing to support these patients was not working. In fact, it might be regular old Jack and Jill wanting to get out because they feel trapped. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And might be, you know, more mentally ill when they came in or now than when they came in. Yeah. I think my understanding, too, is the Kirkbride plan, like the concept was that everything you needed was all in one place. Yeah. And so at least with Trans-Allegheny, I don't think it was common for people to visit their loved ones who were in there and granted like a lot of people probably were just dumping people there and being like I don't want to visit you I don't want to deal with you but I think it really secluded people from the outside world and like it was very rare to allow little little country yeah exactly Um, a series of reports by the Charleston Gazette in 1949 found poor sanitation and insufficient furniture, lighting, and heating in much of the complex. There were crammed patient rooms where up to eight individuals shared a space meant for just one person, and some patients were forced to sleep on freezing hallway floors due to lack of bedding supplies. The hospital held 717 patients by 1880, 1,661 in 1938, over 1,800 in 1949, and at its peak, 2,600 in the 1950s, which was more than 10 times the number of patients it was initially designed to house. And I just don't know how that happens. Like, I don't know how they don't... I guess they're getting money, maybe? Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't know how you just let it get to that point. It must be money. It's always money. <laughs> um, in the 1950s, Trans-Allegheny was home for the one of the homes for the West Virginia Lobotomy Project, which was mm. also known as Operation Ice Pick <laughs> by local media. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. No. This, I know. Oh, my God. I'm, like, getting flashbacks to my eight. We had the same psych teacher in high school, but we're in different classes, and I'm just getting flashbacks to oh, Dr. Yeah. Grove. Shout out to Dr. Grove. Um, he wasn't a doctor. Was his name not Dr. Grove? No, he was a high school teacher. He didn't have a paid PhD. Was his name Mr. Grove? Yes. I have been <laughs> thinking that he was Dr. Grove literally since we graduated from high school. No, you <laughs> never said Dr. Grove in front of me before. You know what? I bet I'm doing that thing. I'm like confusing Mr. Grove with Dr. Grinder because they're both Dr. Well, not do- both Dr., Grr. but they're Grr. <laughs> anyway, um, so Operation... Ice Pick was an effort led by the state of West Virginia and Dr. Walter Freeman to use transorbital lobotomy to reduce the number of patients in asylums because there was severe overcrowding. I don't really get how that would reduce the number of patients. I guess they would scramble their brains. They'd be like walking vegetables and then they'd send them on their way. Right. They'd be like, oh, they're see, they're, they're not, cured. they're not hostile anymore. He's that calm. means they're cured. Oh my Goodbye. God. Scrambled egg brain. It should be noted that Dr. Freeman had no formal surgical training and yet he either performed or directly supervised 775 lobotomies across five West Virginia institutions, 70 of which took place at Trans Trans Allegheny, and four of those lobotomy recipients died pretty immediately due to complications from the procedure. Have you ever seen Catch Me If You Can? No. With Leo? No. DiCaprio? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's really good, one, so you should watch it. But also, they're... Basically, the whole synopsis of the movie is that he's a scam artist and Mm -hmm. he goes from like job to job, but not like your ordinary 
entry-level jobs. He would fake being a lawyer. He'd fake being a doctor. All these things that you actually need, like, special skill sets to have. Mm -hmm. But he would somehow scam people into thinking he was actually these things. And... Um, that just kind of remind like that, that seems like something he would, he didn't go on and like actually perform medical, <laughs> um, you know, procedures, but yeah. he, it seems like something that this guy is doing. Like he's not an actual doctor and he is scamming people into belie- believing that this procedure is carrying everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like that. I'm of course blanking on the name of the place, but it's, it was the, um, I talked about it a few episodes ago, the place where the guy claimed to have a cure for cancer. Oh, yeah. And it was uh, like not the Crescent Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Well, we know we have a good you have a good memory. But yeah, it's like <laughs> the same thing. I don't this guy like what the fuck. Um, so anyway, in addition to these lobotomies, patients at Trans Allegheny were subjected to an array of cruel treatments in quotes, including electroconvulsive shock therapy, uh, forced sterilization, which is just horrifying and contrast baths which is where you alternate bathing bathing and freezing cold and like burning hot water and i don't know what that's supposed to do i feel like it would just piss me off yeah that wouldn't like solve anything but again this is not like real medicine so right um over the years, Trans Allegheny fell into further disrepair. The lack of proper care and access to sanitation led to a large number of deaths at the asylum. Uh, while the official count of patients who have died in the asylum is not available or like readily clear online, historians have estimated the number to be in the thousands. And there are reportedly hundreds of these unmarked graves across the entire 666-acre property. Apparently, the state of West Virginia attempted to exhume and identify the bodies, but this endeavor was discontinued after allegedly 4,000 pieces or sets of remains were found on the property. So I guess I should amend what I just said, that there weren't reportedly hundreds of unmarked graves. There were thousands, or at least thousands of human particles discovered in the ground. God. I know. By the 1980s, the hospital reduced its patient population due to changes in treatment for mental illness. They probably realized half the shit they were treating wasn't actually mental illness and was some other type of illness or just nothing at all. Um, But the smaller number of patients didn't really equate to increased quality of care. Uh, Trans-Allegheny staff, still in the 1980s, so like in more of the modern era, was known to lock patients who could not be controlled in cages. Not just like locked in their rooms, locked in cages. I'm envisioning those cages in the basement in Barbarian. Barbarian. Literally. (laughs) That's all that was in my head. Yes. Same. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that happened. And on January 26th, 1986, West Virginia Governor Arch Moore announced that Weston State Hospital... So Trans-Allegheny, I copied my notes wrong, but Trans-Allegheny had lost its distinction as a mental institution. The building officially closed in 1994 and sat vacant until 2007 when it was purchased by a man from Morgantown, West Virginia named Joe Jordan. Mm, Um, Sounds like a cult leader. I know, like Jim Jones. (laughs) Sorry to Joe Jordan. Sorry. Uh, Joe Jordan Jordan worked diligently to preserve and partially restore the asylum's historic buildings before reopening the complex to the public in 2008. And today, the hospital offers a wide variety of thematic tours pertaining to its history, psychiatric medicine, and all things haunted, spooky, and supernatural. Whoa. Whoa. I'm just two for two. What? (laughs) Uh, The tour guides dress in clothing that resemble 19th century nurses' outfits, which I think is so fun. (laughs) Didn't 
the tour guide when you did the in like the first episode the place that you talked about oh i'm thinking yeah, of yeah, the yeah. pictures on instagram where no, they're the, wearing the monte like, cristo homestead yes. they dressed in like 1800s victorian garb i love yeah. that i think it makes it so much more fun yeah um but so that is just a brief history of the trans allegheny uh lunatic asylum there's a lot more like in depth that you could read about online, but that's my quick overview. And now I want to get into the hauntings. So there are several hotspots for paranormal activity and well-known entities at trans trans Allegheny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All sorts of accents today. Uh, First there's Lily. She was believed to have been born in the asylum around the early 1900s. And she tragically died of pneumonia at just nine years old. So that's even more sad because if she was born inside those walls, she probably never saw the outside world. Because you have oh patients who are, you know, brought there from their external life. Right. But like if you're born in a place she was like born that, there. Oh my God. you're never gonna know real life. Uh, her room in Ward Four is filled with toys and trinkets to honor her youthful spirit. Her pink music box is reported to mysteriously play an eerie melody all on its own, even when there are no tourists or guests in the room. People have also heard disembodied giggles and seen balls roll across the floor like she's begging someone to play with her. Okay, I like Loki would love to hear a disembodied giggle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that makes one of us. (laughs) I think actually, I think if we were someplace like this where, you know, like it might happen, I would want to hear it. So you're telling me in the middle of the night, low no, key, like, you want to <laughs> like, I don't know if like, I'm just, if I'm not like actively in a scary place like that, where I feel almost trapped, I feel like I would not enjoy that. But if we were just like chilling right now and we hear it, I can guarantee you, bitch, if we heard it, <laughs> we would not be having a fun time. I would just be like, what the fuck? <laughs> It would give us a good anecdote, though. Yeah, it would. Well, you can focus on that. I'm going to try to avoid hearing a disembodied giggle, just personally for me. Okay. I'm going to avoid that. Um, But there's also Ruth, who is a former patient who apparently hated men. (laughs) and (laughs) That's great. And had a habit of throwing throwing things at them. Today, her spirit still wanders in the hallways where people have been pushed up against walls and have heard whistling sounds emanating in the hallways. Oh, she's a strong spirit. She is strong. Um, then we have somebody named... Okay, whistles? No. That's where I draw my you line. You think whistles are scarier than a giggle? Yes, 1,000%. Stop! <laughs> <laughs> but why? Um, they're just so much more eerie. Giggle, at least somebody's having fun. A whistle is like somebody's creeping up on you. Yeah, I guess I get that. All I can hear when I think of whistle is the Hunger Games. (laughs) (laughs) Just Just like like that, that, yeah. (laughs) No, but like when I was at um, Jesus Camp, there's another Jesus Camp story coming in. Um, Incoming. Where I went to Jesus Camp, very haunted. I personally never had an experience, but... It is very haunted, and it's, like, as old as the Civil War. And um, there's, like, a like a place in the woods where it's, there's just old clawfoot bathtubs just you told me about on this. the ground. Oh, my God. And we call it the bathtub graveyard. Ugh. And one of our, like, evening programs while I was there, um, this was when I was in high school, uh, was to do a ghost tour. And one of the stories was in the bathtub graveyard and the guy who was telling it one of the counselors you've 
really good at telling the story and he would whistle like as part of the story whatever the ghost whoever the ghost was would whistle and he was really good at it so maybe that's like deeply seated within me it was like associating whistling probably yeah oh yeah a whistle forced bathtubs a a whistle (laughs) late at night in the forest would definitely oh but a giggle late at night in the forest yeah, but at oh. least then it's like, uh, maybe it's just a little kid. Yeah, I guess that's true. I feel like little kids' spirits usually aren't, like, malevolent. It's like, a whistling is, like, kind of, like, I don't know, intimidating. I don't know. It's scary. It's <laughs> Yeah, it's all scary. Um, So there's also a spirit named Jane Harvey. And over the years, numerous visitors reported hearing the name Jane repeated over and over again by some sort of disembodied voice um, who also was able to communicate again to multiple people over the years that she had harmed herself. After hearing these reports over and over again, the Trans-Allegheny Ghost Tour staff were able to obtain old patient records and found that there was, in fact, a patient named Jane Harvey who died by suicide within the building's walls. I know. Very sad. She wasn't the only one. No, well, um, (laughs) ward two on the second floor is haunted by the spirits of a tragic double suicide. I know. Very sad. Um, some visitors report being, becoming overwhelmed with emotions of anguish and grief. Others have reported, others reportedly feel suffocated upon entering the room. I know. And shadow figures have also been seen lurking in an adjacent bathroom where a patient was stabbed 17 times. What? 17. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. By another patient? Or? Uh, it didn't say, but I that would be my best guess. Yeah. You know, I don't, these people were cooped up and not being treated. Mm-mm. And remember earlier when I mentioned those two patients who tried to hang the third with bed sheets from their room? Yeah. So the ghost, those two ghosts and the patient who died have been haunting the asylum for years. And I found this excerpt from a post on the Discover America blog written by Tim Murphy. And I'm just going to read it word for word because it, he describes it really well. It's a little intense, Um, but, and it's just more detail of what I described happened earlier, but he says on the third floor awards F and C the violent male and female blocks respectively. During Trans-Allegheny's waning years of operation, hospital administrators haphazardly grouped aggressive and docile patients together to address the troublesome overcrowding issue. This negligence was problematic for several reasons, and it ultimately led to one of the most horrific murders in asylum history. A deaf, mentally handicapped patient named Charlie was placed with two vicious inmates named Joe and Big Jim. Childlike in nature, Charlie was a beloved member of the hospital community. However, his immature temperament was a nuisance to Joe and Jim. One evening, the perpetrators beat Charlie for his, quote, annoying behavior and attempted to hang him with bedsheets from an overhead pipe. Charlie was suspended and lowered several times from from the makeshift noose, losing consciousness but still refusing to die. In a maniacal rage, Joe placed an iron bed frame on Charlie's head and jumped repeatedly, crushing the unconscious man's skull. Charlie's spirit is believed to reside in the room where he was so brutally murdered. The malevolent entities of Joe and Big Jam are also reported to roam these halls, pushing and scratching on wary visitors. That makes me so sad. I know, isn't that so awful? I saw a clip online from an episode of Portals to Hell that I didn't watch the whole thing, but this clip, they were in that room and they had brought along a psychic to do a reading of the hospital, but they had blindfolded her so that she couldn't like see like, Oh, I know I'm in this room. So I'm getting this sensation. And, um, when she was in this room, she just kept feeling like she had the most crushing headache and like that her neck was felt like she was like, her throat was closing up. 
And Whoa. it was like they didn't tell her anything about obviously what, what happened. happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that room was supposed to be really intense. And yeah, that story fucking sucks. It's very sad. I think a lot of things happened like that in hospitals. Every like everything this. just like was left unchecked, basically. Yeah. Again, could have been solved by not having overcrowding, but like they must have been yeah. getting money, like we said. Um, numerous chilling sounds have been heard coming from inside the former electroshock room, including screams, banging, mysterious slamming doors, throaty moans, uh, <laughs> ominous breathing, and hysterical laughter. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> oh, man, if I ever come back as a ghost. Hysterical. A guffaw. A guffaw and a half. <laughs> You'll know it's me. Oh, I will. <laughs> God. Um, after learning about the asylum's history and notable ghosts, of course, I had to go to Reddit and see what was up. Mm. And there actually wasn't a whole lot on Reddit, but I do have a couple of, um, real life encounters and some pictures that I want to show you. So this is from Reddit user Gutty G two years ago. I visited the trans Allegheny lunatic asylum in West Virginia today. And this is a picture I took in the lobotomy, lobotomy recovery room. It looks like a man is peeking his head around the corner, but this was the first tour in months and no one was around. It still gives me chills. This was the, f I'll show you the picture in a second. Yeah. Uh, they go on to say this was their first tour since October, I believe, because they closed down for the season and were delayed due to COVID. May 30th, May 30th was the first day open and the 10 a.m. tour was the first in the building. The ghost must have been getting used to tours again and wanted to see who was walking around. So like the likelihood that this picture that I'm about to show you was just another person who was like wandering around on another tour is mm -hmm. very, very low. Right. That's the zoomed in version, but that's the original picture right there. And it kind of looks like someone is like peeking their head is around that the corner. To be like the top of their head, like yeah. their forehead or something. Yeah, like their forehead or their baldness. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. And the person said they walked or like they took that picture. It didn't look at it till later, but like the group walked around this area and like there was nothing that looked like that in like real life. Weird. Yeah. Mm. It's just kind of weird. Okay. And then actually this was a comment in the thread that had this picture. Um, Reddit user kitmit97 said, I actually live about 30 minutes away from the town it's in. I visited many times and one tour we took, a friend's mom took a picture in the bathrooms where they normally get activity. And here was, there was a skeletal figure that looked like it was peeking in the mirror. So it, that kind of like legitimizes this picture to me. Like the idea of peeking around something seems to be common. Yeah. Um, there was an eerie feeling the whole tour. Another friend also captured a black figure at the end of the hallway behind our group. I love that building. It is gorgeous and super fascinating. They do haunted houses in the building to the left when you are looking at it at the front. Super creepy and spooky. Lots of stuff happened and a lot of weird, weird feelings in that building. It's a super active building. Each floor has different spirits and feelings. If anyone has a chance to check it out, you definitely should. So Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum today is open for both historical and paranormal tours, as well as guided and private overnight ghost hunts. Mm. And guests have the option to explore the main medical, forensics, and geriatrics buildings. And I think, like, you have to sign a waiver. Like, I think you do for all these things. But I'm pretty sure you're locked in there from, like, 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. And they kind of show you the spots to ghost hunt. But people say even if you're going into it with a group, the building is so huge right. that it's very easy to kind of wander off and all of a sudden you're completely by yourself. Mm, nope. And like, like they, are, they're they are restoring parts of the building, but the vast majority of the rooms, it's like the peeled paint, the like rusted 
overturned old furniture. Yeah. Yeah, it's, like, super creepy. Um, They also host a plethora of Halloween-themed events, including haunted houses, galas, and fall festivals. I checked, and it's, like, a four-hour drive. I was going to say if it's, like, an hour, that'd be easy to get to. But four hours isn't too bad. Is it just, like, a day thing? They have, like, all different sorts of events. So I'm saying, like, if we ever had... a nice little weekend trip? Yeah, like, a little long weekend, we could go... I'd be down for the fall festival. I don't know if I could do a haunted walkthrough at a haunted location. No. I would maybe do a historical tour because then you're still in the building. Well, didn't you say they do, like, ghost tours during the day, too? I think they do have... No, I think they do have daytime ghost tours. We could do that. I'd do that, too. Uh I'd do it. Okay. I want to know the ghost stuff besides what you've already told me. (laughs) (laughs) I bet there's so much more that, like, I didn't even cover. Um, so in conclusion, with all of the death, torture, and inhumane living conditions that characterized trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, it's no surprise to me that its halls are haunted to this day. And I can only hope that the thousands of lost souls who may be connected to the asylum's grounds can one day both find eternal rest and make peace with the atrocities they faced while on this earth. And that is my story on the history and hauntings of the trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Have you seen the Ghost Hunters episode on this? No. I need to get your... Um, Discovery Plus login. Well, I already gave you the logins, dude. Okay. Well, I need to get it from you because it has been featured on Portals to Hell. I tried to find the Ghost Adventures episode, and it seems like they did like a six-hour thing. And of oh, maybe course, it was Ghost Adventures. Of it course, of none them. of the videos were available to watch online, like anywhere. Yeah, and then I think there was a Ghost Hunters episode about it. Yeah. Um, but I haven't watched any of them. But it seems like it's widely covered in all those places. I did watch the Portals to Hell clips on YouTube, which was really interesting. Nice. But there you go. Okay, so it's my turn now. And today I'm going to be talking about Danvers State Hospital, also known as the State Lunatic Hospital at Danvers, the Danvers Lunatic Asylum, and the Danvers State Insane Asylum. Oh, my God. (laughs) Had a lot of different names. And it was a psychiatric hospital located on Hawthorne Hill in Danvers, Massachusetts. And fun fact, Hawthorne Hill was named for John Hawthorne, the judge that presided over the Salem Witch Trials. (gasps) Really? He used to live on that land. Oh, my God. That's crazy. So it was built in 1874, opened on May 1st, 1878, under the supervision of prominent Boston architect Nathaniel Jeremiah Bradley. And it was built on an isolated site in rural Massachusetts, according to the Kirkbride Plan. Um, And as Greer mentioned before, the Kirkbride Plan provided that mental hospitals should be built, quote, in the country, though accessible at all seasons, be set on grounds of at least 100 acres. Um, And my source said house a maximum of 250 patients, which (laughs) we both know was... (laughs) Exceeded. (laughs) That's not what happened, folks. Um, It was to be built of stone or brick with slate or metal roof and otherwise made as fireproof as possible. Which Greer mentioned that hers was lit on fire. (laughs) It didn't work. Spoiler alert, mine was too. (laughs) Uh, Be composed of eight wards separated according to sex and built according to other specifications as to size, location, and material of accommodations. It was to be organized with wings flanking a central administration building and house the most, quote, excited patients in the end or outermost wings. Um, And as Greer mentioned before, provide an abundance of pure, fresh air. Um, Its construction was part of a countrywide plan, at least in the late 1800s, that people with psychological problems needed to be cured inside specially made facilities. 
So Danvers occupied a hilltop site of over 500 acres with a commanding view of Boston 18 miles to the south. So at a cost of $1.5 million at the time, which uh, today, I already looked it up, <laughs> is about $44.7 million. Oh, wow. The hospital originally consisted of two main center buildings housing the administration with four radiating wings on each side of the administration block. The kitchen, laundry, chapel, and dormitories for the attendants were in a connecting building in the rear, and on each side of the main building were the wings for male and female patients, respectively. The outermost wards were reserved for the most hostile patients, as I mentioned before, and renovations were made over the years, but most of the buildings on campus were connected by a labyrinth of tunnels. Ew. Which is, I think, <laughs> is how they kept the air circulating, oh, was through the tunnels. Interesting. Ugh, I hate tunnels. Which, I put in parentheses, spooky, <laughs> because <laughs> I'm only imagining, like, how many patients that were left unattended or unchecked like oh ended God. up in the tunnels and were just like wandering oh, around so and that also made me think of barbarian <laughs> guys i don't think we've like talked at length about barbarian we've just like mentioned it in the past couple episodes but if you haven't seen it go see it yeah the it's first half especially scare is the shit so out of you scary yeah um so many of the commonwealth institutions for the developmentally delayed and the mentally ill at the time were designed with tunnel systems to be self-sufficient in winter time so like as greer mentioned with her place that was also a model of the Kirkbride plan um every, everything they needed was there for them so like everything that they needed in in the main building could be transported through the tunnels and then interestingly from the air and i will include this in on the instagram post um f- the overall design looks like a bat in mid-flight so like the administration what? building in the middle uh-huh. and then the wings go like up from there out up and out and if you look at it from the air it looks like a bat in flight that's so bizarre which i will come back to towards the end oh god of this story okay <laughs> so as danvers state hospital was being built there was already an immediate need for a mental hospital north of Boston. So in 1873, Worcester, Taunton, and Northampton, and the Tewkesbury Asylum for Chronic Patients were all already housing 1,300 patients and buildings designed for 1,000. And another 1,200 were scattered about in various other hospitals. What a mess. In that year, authorization was given for a, quote, state lunatic hospital at Danvers. It was to serve primarily Essex County, which Danvers was a part of, um, and to accommodate an overflow from South Boston of at least 200 people. So as originally established, the Danvers Hospital was to be run by a resident superintendent appointed by an unpaid board of trustees chosen by the governor. Central authority lay with the Board of State Charities, and in 1898, the leadership role of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts radically advanced with the information of the State Board of Insanity, which was the first in the United States, and they passed landmark legislation that took the poor out of the almshouses, which are basically a a form of a halfway house that's run by the church. Okay. Um, So they took the poor out of the almshouses and put them under state control introduced occupational therapy and social services, and emphasized mental hygiene and called for professional training of nurses and attendants. So Danvers was actually, like, one of the first mental institutions that also was a nursing school. Interesting. Um, so it was, you know, starting off peachy and positive, <laughs> as was yours. So at first, Danvers was a success. 
By 1900, Danvers State Hospital employed 125 people and had treated more than 9,500 patients since opening. However, its good reputation proved to be Danvers' undoing. As the original plan was to house 500 patients, with attic space potentially housing 1,000 more, and I put in parentheses, how would an attic hold twice as many patients <laughs> as the whole building? I don't know. But that's what it said. Uh, but by the late 1930s and 1940s, over 2,000 patients were being housed and overcrowding was severe. People were even being held in the basements. So administrators begged the state for money to build more rooms and hire more staff to no avail. And I said probably just not enough funds to accommodate the demand. They didn't yes. have enough money to pay for more staff, didn't have enough money to accommodate for more patients. So the overcrowding grew as more and more people were being put into mental institutions for yes. reasons that they probably didn't need to be put into mental institutions. Exactly. Um, so the living conditions quickly deteriorated. Patients would walk through the hallways naked. They lived in their own filth from the lack of hygiene. And then insulin coma therapy was introduced in 1946. Also known as insulin shock therapy, this was a form of psychiatric treatment in which patients were repeatedly injected with large doses of insulin in order to produce daily comas oh. over several weeks. What? Well, so it's just another way for them to subdue patients. What was this supposed to treat something specific or did they just use this for like, it's just, they, it seems similar to lobotomies and that they kind of, it was kind of. To quiet, it's kind of to just make them like vegetables. Yeah. And they're like, it'll cure anything basically. God, I'm so glad we're not alive back then. Yeah, we probably... Uh, hysterical women. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. With my <laughs> the, and then the first lobotomy was introduced in 1948. And by the 1950s, electric shock therapy was introduced, which Greer talked about already a little bit. Electroconvulsive therapy is a psychiatric treatment where a generalized seizure is electrically induced to manage refractory mental disorders, but essentially was used to make patients submit. That's insane. I mean, yeah. not the right word to use here. That's bad. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, the use of straitjackets for, quote, misbehaving patients was also reported. And then I found this actually off of the hospital's website. Now, the hospital, I'll get into this more later, but the hospital isn't in use anymore. It's not a mental institution anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess there is still a website there for, like, historical purposes, has a whole bunch of like um archive pictures and mm. and stuff like that and um there was a, a tab for reported patient abuse oh gosh but it was from 1989 was the last time that it was the only the last report it was, it was the only report that they had on the website i couldn't tell if the report was detailing an incident that happened in 1989 or if that's just when it was reported. Mm. I want to say it happened in 1989, though. But basically, I'm going to read to you. There were several incidents listed, but I'm going to read to you one that really, that stood out the most to me. And they've they've um, changed all the names, obviously. So, you know, privacy reasons. Yeah. Um, according to the written complaint filed by a day program, this incident occurred in the evening on a ward porch. Client X and another patient were playing chess and were swearing at Mr. A. And Mr. A then placed a help call, took off his glasses. So uh, if you aren't aware, Mr. A is a worker. He's like, 
he's not one of the patients. Got it. Okay. So Mr. A then placed a help call, took off his glasses, pointed to the two patients and said, you guys come here. The patients did not move. Mr. A then began throwing chairs and approached the two patients. Mr. A grabbed client A X around the neck, at which point X fell over a chair. Mr. A then swung a chair at X, hitting him in the right knee. A fight then ensued in which the other patient knocked Mr. A to the floor. Staff from other areas began to arrive and restrained, restrained the two clients involved in the altercation and, and other patients in the area. According to Mr. X, while he was restrained to the gurney, Mr. A was kneeling on his face. According to other staff involved in the restraint, it did not require an excessive amount of force from the four to five staff to restrain Mr. X. Another patient who was present at the time stated that Mr. A smashed her head into the floor in the process of trying to restrain her and sat on her head when she was restrained. There was no evidence in the statements that she required restraint. According to one staff who arrived at the scene, Mr. A was on top of a patient with his hands around the patient's neck and appeared to be, quote, applying excessive force and endangering the safety and welfare, unquote, of the patient. This employee assumed that the person doing the choking was a patient and broke the chokehold because, quote, I saw the danger. Mr. A screamed and said, I'm staff. Later in the incident, the second employee also witnessed Mr. A straddling a patient's legs, whose arms were already in restraints, quote, twist the patient's left foot in a clockwise direction to the point of almost snapping. Oh, God. I yelled at him to stop, end quote. Mr. A then twisted the patient's other foot until the second employee again yelled at him to stop. Mrs. G, a registered nurse and chief hospital supervisor, responded to the help call, found Mr. X on his back in a gurney in four-point restraint. F- four or five MHWs, which I don't know Mental what that is. Mental health workers? Maybe? Oh, Maybe. there you go. No, that's probably it. Mental health workers were transferring the gurney to the corridor. Mr. X attempted to sit up, which he was unable to do because of the restraints. At that point, Mrs. G observed Mr. A, quote, jump into the air and land with his full body weight, left knee first, on X's mid-sternum. What in the... Following that deliberate force, Mr. A once again lifted his knee and with harmful intent forced his knee down on X's chest in the mid-sternum area. In both instances, the force applied was severe enough to push Mr. X's back into the mattress. In an interview with DPPC investigators, Mrs. G described the incident, quote, I've never seen anything like it. It was disgusting to see. Terrible, end quote. Mrs. G did not report this incident to the DPPC. Two other staff involved in the incident signed statements that they saw no abuse. Mr. A left work that evening saying that his wrist had been injured in the incident. Mr. A was not allowed to return to work and was terminated. All of the staff involved in all three incidences are required by law to report abuse to the DPPC. All of the staff involved are required by DMH regulations to file complaints whenever an illegal, dangerous, or inhumane incident or condition occurs. None of the staff involved in any of the incidences, incidents called the DPPC hotline to report the abuse. None of the staff involved file a formal complaint as required by DMH regulations. Some staff did report the matter to their supervisors. So that just kind of paints what kind of treatment these patients were going through. And this was in presumably the 80s. Mm-hmm. So thinking back to like the early 1900s when things were probably even worse oh, is just like. I can't even imagine. They were suffering abuse on the reg. 
Um, But to delve a little deeper into all the medical malpractice, in 1939, the medical community was looking for a permanent fix to the crisis facing medical health facilities. The population of the hospital had risen to 2,360, and a total of 278 people had died at the hospital that year. That year? In 1939, yes. So many people. Mm Mm-hmm. Medical science saw lobotomies as a cure for anyone's insanity and as a way to stop the deaths, which I don't... Okay. (laughs) Neurology experts often called Danvers State Hospital the, quote, birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy. The moniker came from its widespread use, but also from the procedure's refinement at the hospital. Dr. Walter Jackson Freeman, who Greer mentioned earlier, a.k.a. the lobotomist, conducted several lobotomies on various (laughs) patients which in turn sparked the adoption of the lobotomy by other state facilities across the country. Visitors to Danvers State Hospital in the early 1940s reported lobotomy patients wandering aimlessly through the halls of the hospital or staring blankly at walls. And by the 1960s, massive budget cuts were severely affecting the hospital, spurring its progressive closing. So the hospital began closing wards and facilities as early as 1969, and by 1985, the majority of the original hospital wards were closed or abandoned until the entire hospital was permanently shut down in 1992. From then until 2005, the building remained abandoned, as well as a popular destination for thrill-seeking tweens, as I put it, (laughs) looking for a good scare. (laughs) Group of teens. (laughs) In 2005, the property was sold to Avalon Bay Communities for $18.1 million. Wait, who's that? Avalon Bay There's, like, so many Avalons in Boston. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, that's so funny. Yeah. Despite a lawsuit filed by a local preservation fund, demolition of most of the buildings began in January 2006 with the intent to build 497 apartments. Why not make it an even 500? Because these people don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah, okay. Avalon Bay demolished all of the buildings except the main administration building and the D&G wings. However, construction was delayed in April 2007 when four of the apartment complex buildings and four of Avalon Bay's construction trailers burned down in a large fire visible from Boston nearly 17 miles away. Jeez. What year was that? 2007. I should ask Corey if his parents remember that i'm sure they remember hearing about this yeah or maybe they like don't care they also might not care. (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay and then on june 27th 2014 avalon bay communities sold the property for 108.5 million dollars to the dsf group which is a real estate developer based in boston that plans to implement additional renovations the complex is now called Halstead Danvers or Bradley Danvers and is being promo- promoted to prospective buyers as a high-tech luxury apartment complex that offers everything from virtual golfing to an on-site juice bar. Okay, great. What's virtual <laughs> golfing? Is that like Wii golfing? Yes. Oh, virtual golfing, they have it at Dick's. You like <laughs> you have your golf club and you really swing and you hit a ball, but the ball hits like a screen and like oh, like a sheet. Okay, why do I feel like somebody was doing this in Step Brothers? (laughs) Because I feel like that would have happened in Step Brothers. Yeah, it was like somebody that Derek worked with or something. We need to watch that again soon. Anyway. Um, But this is giving, like, um, the Radley, like, being turned into a luxury hotel. Wait, I just Googled Halstead Danvers to see. and And it kind of still looks like... The original, like it looks That's like it, a right. That yeah, it looks oh like God. a fancy 
you old wouldn't mental institution. If you didn't know, you wouldn't. It looks like, beautiful. But yeah, like, well, it's my crib on this isolated piece of land. Oh, my God. Like, who's going to want to live out there? No, no, no. You know? People who don't know, that's who. So, oh today, only the exterior of the Kirkbride complex was preserved in the demolition and the cemeteries. Several blocked tunnels and the brick shell of the administration and the D&G wings are all that remain from the original site. Richard Trask of the Danvers Archival Center wrote concerning the state's failure to preserve the Kirkbride complex, quote, the failure to protect and, and adaptively reuse this grand exterior is a monumental blot in the annals, yeah. annals? <laughs> in the annals of Massachusetts preservation. What might have been a dignified transformation of a magnificent structure, which was originally built to serve the best intentions, but at times lost its way through human frailty, now is a mere ghost image mm. of itself. And we and our progeny are the losers, end quote. Mm. So two cemeteries were implemented onto the property, the North Cemetery and South Cemetery. During the 1980s, reports began to filter out of the hospital about missing teenage patients. Oh, no. One account states that upwards of 115 patients had disappeared within just three months. I hope they ran away, honestly. Yeah. But that's a lot, right? That's That's a lot lot for to be runaways. In three months. Yeah. The hospital never spoke about it publicly because their closure was imminent. When staff were questioned about where the patients were going, the only answer was, quote, these patients had been assigned to a new doctor. Hmm. The missing patients of Danvers were never found, and it remains a mystery to this day what had actually happened to them. No bodies were recovered, and staff of Danvers remained tight-lipped throughout their closure, if they had known any details at all. So, But due to the increasing external pressures, efforts were made to match names to numbered graves. So there was like a whole bunch of already numbered graves on the property, but like nobody knew who was actually buried there. So... There are 770 graves between both sites. The North Cemetery has 677 people buried, with 542 identified and 354 have matching names to their number. So a little over half were mm-hmm. identified. Um, the South Cemetery has 93 numbered markers, with 84 identified, but the names could not be matched with the numbers. So that part confused me a little bit because they identified 84 of the 93 what does that mean if you can't match names with numbers i don't know yeah i don't know and what about the the remaining nine quick maths maths. so either way there are still a bunch of um a bunch of unidentified graves at at this property that's so sad yeah But now (laughs) we're going to get into the hauntings. (laughs) Over 100 years of patient abuse, nightmarish living conditions, medical malpractice, and so much death can only result in the perfect breeding ground for paranormal activity and ghosts galore, lest we not forget the land's connection to the Salem witch trials. Visitors to the property report screaming, banging, and crying. The cemeteries are also hotbeds of paranormal activity in which apparitions are commonplace and disembodied voices are heard frequently. Visitors often report seeing deep black shadows moving about the property. Others see grayish mists moving slowly around, following people who come to the site. Ooh. Ugh, gray mist. Disembodied voices within the halls of the hospital calling out for help or attention. Ugh. Pretty common. Um, 
Even after the property became an apartment complex, residents and visitors have recorded full body apparitions. I have not found any. I will keep looking. Oh, my God. (laughs) Flickering lights and sound of unexplained footsteps and doors opening and closing on their own. No. It's just, like, not worth it. I feel like there's no way you can't know when you're applying for this place that it was a mental hospital previously right that was like would, like google horrible. the name of the property and I feel yeah like or even if up. you show up for a tour you're like what is this place? yeah like, why is it this way <laughs> yeah um unfortunately danvers was never really a ghost hunting hotbed because the site has been closed to the public including the 13 years it sat abandoned many paranormal investigators have tried to sneak into the compound but they got arrested before entering the state of massachusetts and the community police routinely patrolled the grounds over 120 ghost hunters have tried and failed to get access to the site. Oh, my God. However, a few hunters did succeed in getting onto the property during the day, but only one team has investigated at night in the last 25 years, which was the Rhode Island Paranormal Research Group. Hmm. However, no evidence has been released from that night, and they refuse to talk about it. <laughs> that means some shit went I said, down. But, like, for why? Aren't you ghost hunters? <laughs> maybe... Maybe they were threatened by the spirits. That's like my. That's like the only explanation I can think of for why they won't talk about it. Like if whatever entity was in there, like scared the living shit out of them. Mm -hmm. Like if you tell anybody I'm here, I'll kill your family. Yeah, I'll follow you home. Oh God, yeah, something like that. Danvers. Oh, I also found a Danvers Herald article titled "The Lore and Lure of Danvers State Hospital" by Michael Puffer. Uh, published October 29th, 2003, about um, encounters at Danvers State Hospital. Uh, Festival of the Dead hosts Christian Day and Robert Murch went on a ghost hunt of the famed Danvers State Mental Hospital. At this time, 2003, the state had an allowed maximum of 20 people to the twice-monthly two-hour tours of the grounds. And this was the only source that I found that actually talked about this place giving tours. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was 2003, so it was still abandoned at this point. It wasn't, hadn't been bought by Avalon Bay yet. Yeah. Um, and it also made me think, well, if there's a twice monthly two hour tour going on, why do people feel the need to trespass? But I guess if it's during the day and they want to do it at night. That's probably what it is. Or they're just like impatient. I don't know. They're just rowdy tweens or whatever. Rowdy tweens. <laughs> rowdy gains. Rowdy. Okay. <laughs> um, so they spoke with Gerilyn... Lavasseur, don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Sorry, Geraldine, whose family would hear footsteps in the second story hallways of their home when nobody was upstairs. Doors would open and close. Lights would flicker on and off. Now, Geraldine had grown up on the grounds of Danvers State Hospital in a house lent to her father, who was a hospital administrator named Gerald Richards. Now 52, Geraldine clearly remembers one day in her youth when her sister and a brother were playing upstairs in the attic. Oh, my God. This is giving hereditary right now. And saw an apparition of an older woman angrily scowling at them. Oh, no. I'm just imagining her, like, in the the corner. In the corner. Mm -hmm. Like, no. They were too scared to move until their mother ordered them to come down. So, like, how long do you think they were up there? Because... Like, I don't know how long their mom, my mom was probably busy doing housework all yeah. day. And like, it was like, what? It's too oh. quiet. Where are my kids? Oh my God. Maybe they were like transfixed and that's her yeah, mom's Like voice. petrified. Yeah. Geraldine was in high school when her bed covers were pulled completely off her bed. <gasps> Nobody was in the room. She was petrified, but said she always had the feeling no real harm would come to her. 
So I guess that's nice. <laughs> now Gerilyn works as an assistant to the chief nurse executive at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, a career she said was inspired by her father's teachings about the importance of caring for the mentally ill. At this point in time, the property was held by the Massachusetts Department of Capital Asset Management, who can attest to the interest of lovers of ghost stories and spirit seekers. That year alone, the agency had received more than a dozen requests by people wishing to perform seances there. Oh, boy. These requests were turned down as the agency hopes to discourage anything that would fan the interest of people in the place, leading to more trespassers sneaking in and possibly getting hurt in the falling floors or in the failing floors of the buildings. The trespassers. One such requester was Salem resident Bob Merch, a financial researcher for Fidelity Investments by day. Merch invested and sells a Ouija board called Cryptique, decorated with artwork from Salem area grave sites. I n- had Damn, never heard. That's kind of cool. It is kind of cool, but I'd never even heard of this type of Ouija board before. No, did you Google I it? I Googled it. There's one on Amazon. Oh, um, actually, wait, I think I still have it up. Yeah. Does it look the same as a normal Ouija board, just with no. this art No, so on it, it um, instead of saying goodbye, it says rest in peace. Oh. Which I don't like. I don't like either. Um, and the letters are not, like, in the same form as they are on a regular Ouija board. They're kind of scattered all over the place. And then there's also Ro- Roman numerals in the middle. Oh, that's weird. Ugh. No. Yeah, so no, I don't know I don't if it works them, but. any differently than that, um, than like a normal Ouija board, but it it's given some some bad vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Practicing Salem witches and co-hosts of the Festival of the Dead, Sean Poirier and Christian Day also shared their understanding of Danvers. This is a quote from Christian Day. Danvers State is definitely an epicenter of haunting energy, largely due to the confusion of the people who were there when they died which is why there is such a draw. And then Poirier said he'd visited friends at the asylum before its closure and that during his visits, he felt the energy of the place, though whether it was haunted by actual spirits or just an emotional charge of energy, he couldn't say. Wow, that's really sad. Yeah. So while Danvers is not featured in your typical ghost hunting media, Danvers State Hospital has inspired the works of many artists throughout the year. It was the setting for the film Session 9 which was a 2001 psychological thriller centered around an asbestos abatement crew oh my who take a cleanup job at an abandoned mental asylum amid an intense work schedule, growing tensions, and mysterious events occurring around them. Its title refers to a series of audio tape sessions with an asylum patient that run parallel to the crew's experiences. Ooh. Sounds, sounds pretty interesting. good. Yeah. The hospital was also featured in the 1958 film Home Before Dark, and most famously, the Danvers State Hospital is believed by literary historians, served as inspiration for the infamous Arkham Sanatorium from H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep. Ooh. Lovecraft's Arkham, in turn, is the inspiration for Arkham Asylum, a psychiatric hospital within the Batman universe. Oh. And where the Joker was kept in the straight jacket. Oh. Do you remember that? Oh. I mean, no, but... Did you watch the Joker? It's heavily, it's heavily referenced in Joker with Ooh. Walking Phoenix. Yeah. But you haven't seen that? No. What? I know. Weird. I know. It just wasn't a vibe. It is a very sad movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah. That's That's cool. what it's, the Arkham Asylum is based off of this mental hospital. That's really cool. Which is really, really cool. And brings me back to my point that I mentioned earlier about how from the air, the Kirkbride plan 
design looks like a bat in flight. Oh my god. Yep. Wow. Smart. <laughs> so, in conclusion, with such sadness, neglect, abuse, and trauma comes the staining of the land. From the involvement with the Salem witch trials to the horrors that occurred at Danvers, it's not shocking that the land was home to one of the most haunted mental asylums, now residential buildings, in the world. And that is my story of Danvers State Hospital and the hauntings that have occurred there. That was fascinating. I think I told you this. I think I did text you this yesterday, but... This time around, I felt more interested in the actual history of my place than I did. Like, the ghost stuff is always interesting, right. but I was like, this is so beyond fascinating, well, the real-life history it, Yeah, of it. because, like, you know there's going to be hauntings that are coming from this, but you mm-hmm. want to know why, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's all in the history of what went down at these places mm-hmm. and, like, what caused these spirits to be so tormented. And so, trapped. Yeah. yeah. Those were... We, like, killed it with the stories today. Those were great. (laughs) So I guess that means it's time for our paranormal protection tip of the week. So this week, we're encouraging you to burn a white candle. There's positive energy in white candles, and votives are really good to have on hand. So you can light them in every room and rid your rooms of negative energy. That's a good tip. Yeah. I have a lot of candles. That one's white. Does it have to be like white wax or does it have to be like a white? I think white. Like what exterior. I'm thinking of like those tall it's white, white candles. wax candles. Okay. All right. Maybe we can find some at Home Goods next week when we go. Oh my god, guys, we're so excited <laughs> to finally go to Home Goods. We didn't get there for fall decor, but I had a shit ton. Like all of those pumpkins on my dresser right there are Home Goods. Except for that one I got from Renfair. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, but the rest are from Home Goods. So I already had a this shit ton of. This one is so nice. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to Home Goods for Christmas decor, and then we're going to the Olive Garden for dinner because it's been, the Olive Garden. I still don't think I've been to Olive Garden since pre-pandemic. I absolutely Back when haven't. they took pesto off the menu. I know. What the fuck is that so about? So I still have a little bit of beef with them. That's fine. I'm going to get my five cheese ZD Al Forno and just be happy. Okay, I'll be happy with the breadsticks and the and the salad and whatever else I get. You should get the five cheese ZD Alfano, <clears throat> or we should get two different kinds and split. Okay, okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for <laughs> listening, guys. As always, um, make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Our handles are both at DFWG Podcast. And you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash DFWG podcast. If you are enjoying our show and wish to be a part of our growth, shout out to our patrons, Brittany, Nikki, and Jeremiah. We can't thank you enough for supporting our work. Thank you. Being a part of our, being a part of our spooky community. Um, and as I said earlier in the episode, you can send your encounters to our email address, DFWG podcast at gmail.com. Um, and please rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can share this podcast with your networks. We're on any platform you could think of. Pretty much, we're there. So remember to burn a white candle to manifest positive energy, and always stay away from Ouija boards. Bye, Bye guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh yeah, happy Turkey Day. <laughs> Ham is better. Yeah.